The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. MSW Media. Hey, it's Aisha Tyler. And before he was known as Podcast Dan, he was known to me and so many others as Puka Dan. And Puka Dan, forever shall he be. Well, pour yourself a glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. But this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. What we're drinking on today's episode is Singani 63. You might be asking yourself, what is Singani? Well, I'll tell you. Singani has been around 500 years. It is a brandy-like liquor, but it's not brandy. Although the U.S. has has categorized it as brandy for a long time, but it's it's actually distilled from a single variety of white grape, the Musket of Alexandria. It is the national spirit of Bolivia, and for many years, our guest on today's show, Director Steven Soderbergh, has been fighting tirelessly to get this clear, mixable liquid liquor into the U.S. after first drinking it while shooting the movie Che in Bolivia. Steven's been a, uh, he's been the champion of bringing Singani to the States, and his brand is called Singani 63, and we're going to be talking with him in just Sorry, it happens on this drinking show. You burp sometimes. We'll be talking to him in just a couple of minutes and excited about that. Somebody sent me something, an email the other day, reminding me that it was seven years ago this month that Modern Drunkard magazine came out. It was issue number 58. And in the issue, they have a, a segment called, a feature called The Drunkard of the Issue. And it was me. That was seven years ago this week. So I went and I dug it up online. I want to take a look back at this. It was a you know kind of a big moment for me, a, glor- a glorious period of my career. When you get named drunkard of the issue and you work in the adult beverage industry, that's something. That's something to call home about. So this is what the article said. It said, many dream of drinking for a living, but Dan Dunn actually pulls it off. Author of the hard-drinking classics Living Loaded and Nobody Likes a Quitter, booze columnist, radio personality, and all-around drinking expert, Dan reveals how it's done. So here's just a little snippet of some of the the questions they asked me and my answers. So the first question they asked was, do I remember my first drink? To which I responded, the day after he graduated from eighth grade, my friends and I planned this big party in the woods near my house. 
My parents kept a well-stocked liquor cabinet that I was obviously forbidden from going anywhere near. My stepdad was no dummy either. I knew he kept a close eye on the liquor supply. So then, rather than risk swiping a whole bottle of something, I instead filched about a shot from every bottle. But get this, my mom was home, and I was so afraid of getting caught that I decided to smuggle my booze booty out of the house in a racquetball can. To this day, I'm not entirely sure why I thought this was a good idea, but I bet it had a lot to do with being 13. So not only did I bring this horrendous haphazard concoction of God knows what kinds of booze, it came, quote, infused with rubber and formaldehyde. Needless to say, me and just about every other kid at that party hurled. That was the first time I ever had a drink, and it's been downhill ever since. The next question they asked me was, what's your usual? And again, seven years ago, my usual, I said a Negroni, served in a tennis ball can. I'm sophisticated now. They asked, what is the greatest drinking story I've ever told? I've been telling drinking stories for a living for 15 years, so it's difficult to pick one. It's kind of like singling out a favorite child. Also difficult, since I don't have any. But on the whole, the drinking stories I enjoy most are the ones that end with me either getting laid or getting paid. And I'll skip over a couple. They asked, are you aware of any hangover cures that actually work? To which I replied, Alcoholics Anonymous. What's your favorite bar and why? Any of the airport bars at LAX, because that usually means I'm on my way to someplace fun. And that kind of made me sad just thinking about that answer, because we can't travel right now, can we? It's coming. Another, uh, another question they asked, what's the drinking scene like in LA? How does it compare to Philly, my hometown of Philly? To which I responded, in Philly, nobody can hear you scream. Dan Dunn's dream bender team. I'll assume you mean famous people and go with Marilyn Monroe, Nico from the Velvet Underground, supermodel Anna Beatrice Barros, and Kate Winslet. My B team would include comedians Greg Giraldo and Mitch Hedberg, author Jack Kerouac, and Cleopatra. How do you know when it's time to stop drinking and go home when the room stops spinning and I start spinning? Question. The vast majority of history's great writers were also tremendous drunks who didn't care who knew about it. Most of today's writers begin weeping hysterically when you suggest they have a second glass of wine. What happened? The internet. Without a doubt. It's created a world full of cowards and creeps. And not the good kind of creeps. And the final question they asked me was, Can you trust someone who doesn't drink? To which I replied, If he's driving home from the bar, I have to. So there you go. That time I was drunkard of the issue. Oh boy, exciting stuff. And uh, speaking of exciting stuff, I want to uh, get to Steven Soderbergh. Is everybody on board with that? Everybody on board with getting to Soderbergh? Can I can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? All right, all right, all right. Or an all right, all right, all right. That, of course, is Matthew McConaughey, who has worked with Soderbergh a few times, most notably as Dallas in the film Magic Mike. But you know what? Let's have Stephen talk about that, and let's get to that interview right now. With me now, the only man who's ever 
referred to me as a poor man's Colin Farrell, and I liked it when he said it. I got to say I liked it. He's a director of some merit, and he also uh, makes or imports a spirit from Bolivia that is going to blow your mind when you try it. Mr. Steven Soderbergh, how are you, man? Hey, Dan, good to see you. And by the way, we don't know what Colin Farrell's net worth is right now. You could be the rich man's Colin <laughs> Farrell. Like, I who could knows? promised me when we met that I was going to get 33% of your hairline, and I'm still waiting. Yeah, well, you've got the hat on now, but yeah, my hair is out of control. It's like a uh, it's like a pet now on uh, up yeah. here. I've been shaving the sides myself, but I don't dare try to attempt scissors on my own. I just feel like it would be better to let it go where it's going to go. Yeah. yeah. So you're you're quarantining, I guess, in in New York City, right? Yeah, we decided to stay here. It's been pretty surreal, um, but I was very. Encouraged today at the numbers coming out of the city, it looks like we're we're making real progress. So it's I'm glad we stayed. It's interesting. I was thinking about you, and I mean, and, and everybody. I mean, every single everybody's got a story of the things that have happened and and how this has interrupted life. But I did think of you because I sent you a message not long before this happened because I saw you had gotten a a deal at HBO and you had all these things going. And, and, it, and when I thought about talking to you today, it just made me realize, you know, just how much everybody's it, it such a crazy thing to think that life has essentially stopped for two and a half months. Well, it has um, for a lot of people. And I think a lot of the stories that are most compelling right now are about the people for whom life has not stopped who don't have the option um, to to stay at home. And it's it's heartbreaking, especially here in New York. And I'm as anxious as anyone to to see this move into a place that's that's more manageable for all of us. But at the same time, you know, what I learned during the making of Contagion and um, staying in touch with some of our technical consultants on this movie has has taught me is this is a very serious thing. This virus, this is a really serious thing. It does it 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 when they say it's a novel virus, like it really does things that we haven't seen before. It's what uh, uh, anybody in the medical science world would call a nose to toes disease. They're, they're still discovering ways in which it affects people uh, that they didn't know, you know, a month ago. It's, it's very serious. So it's, I understand this sort of polarization that's going on between a real desire to, to have our lives not controlled by this and the very real threat that it represents. It's, um, I, it's, it's hard. Like, it's hard being stuck at home for anybody. And I I only got two cats. I don't have. <laughs> I, I don't I'm alone have, with my dog. So it's. Well, uh, I don't have to homeschool them on being cats. No, they're, they're pretty instinctive that way. Now, I've had so many people say, or if I say that on social media as well, they go, oh, man, this feels like a movie. And I say, yeah, it is. It was Soderbergh made it ten, uh, nine years ago. But um, 
You, uh, by the way, all this talk of pandemic makes me want to drink some Singani. Do you mind if I chug this entire glass right now to ease my, quell my exquisite inner pain? I think you should do that. And I want to let you know as a, a testament to our, our, you know, burgeoning relationship. So this is, this will be the first drink I've had since March 5th. Wow. I will. Can- I, I, there's, there's one asterisk there, but it doesn't count. Um, Heroin. You've been shooting heroin the entire time. Yeah. The asterisk is I've been on hardcore drugs since March yeah. 5th. Yeah. Singani 63A fall. Um, <laughs> no, what I had gone on a trip the first week of March and I was visiting a lot of spots, San Francisco, Seattle, Detroit, Portland, you know, New York. And I thought, you know, my immune system, I know, is affected by my drinking. When I drink, I know my immune system isn't as robust as it ought to be. So I stopped. Um, and then I just kind of got into the habit of not doing that. And then it became, now it's become a point of principle. I don't want to start up again until I can go to a bar and sit down and have a drink. Like now, now it's turned into something else, but I broke it. I broke my quarantine for you oh, because this, this is a I'm coming. We've been talking about, we've been talking for a long time. Yeah. Last time I saw you, we were in a bar in New York City. We were in a, a brandy bar with I, uh, Brandy Library. Brandy now. Library in, in Soho, right? Yeah. Uh, Tribeca. Tribeca. That's right. And we, it's such a strange, it really does feel like another lifetime ago that we were, we were sitting around in close contact, having drinks yeah. and in, enjoying the conversation. I, um, my experience has been, the exact opposite of yours. The only question now for me on a daily basis has been, is it okay to start drinking at 9.30 a.m.? Sure, why not? You know, no, to be honest with you, I, I think I'm drinking more regularly, meaning on a daily basis, like I'll have a few drinks. But what's not happening for me is I'm not going out to the bars all day. And, ah, you know, there hasn't been any, because at some point you just kind of go, well, I'm just tired now. You know, I've had yeah. two or three drinks. It's, it's, taken the edge off a little bit and i really have taken some comfort in having a cocktail or two every day i feel it just calms me down makes me feel maybe a little bit less anxious well i i agree and i think you know what you're describing when you're out especially like when you and i would see each other and i would essentially be on a singani pub crawl we would be going from one place to another and meeting new people and they would have made a cocktail and you got the cocktail and it and you know <laughs> as my wife likes to say nothing good happens after 11 p.m no and when you go on these pub crawls and it's 12 12 30 and yeah it is i think you're right when you're at home if you're if you're doing this sort of in lockdown there is a sort of governor there. You don't have, you're not around 10 other people who, who are throwing them back and you feel like, well, let's keep going. Like that whole idea of let's keep going, which don't get me wrong. Nobody, I'm first in line for that. <laughs> well, there's, a, there's another aspect to this that you don't think about. When you're a home alone, there's nobody saying to you, hey, do you want another one? Because I don't know how many times someone has said to me, 
hey, you, you need another one? I don't need another one, but the fact that they're asking me and they're getting up, it's almost like I don't want to get lag behind. Clear, I don't yeah. want to be them lapping me on it. Yes, I need another one. I still have half a drink, but you'll say, yeah. Or someone goes to the bar, I'm up my round. I grew up poor in Philadelphia. Somebody says I'm getting another round. I could have a, com- a completely full drink, and I'm going to go, yeah, I'll take one. Yeah, You're sure. paying for it? Sure. Well, you know, as, as uh, I think we're all curious to know what cocktail culture is going to look like on the other side of this. I mean, we've already... We've already seen, I mean, Pegu Club closing. I saw that post on, on Facebook that she was closing it down, and it was, it was really upsetting to know that a place like that can't make it. No, and she's not going to be alone. And, and for, as, as we know, or as I've learned, this is, this is for people who, who open and run you know, a new bar or, or a new restaurant, their, their margins you know, they're, they can't withstand something like this. And they've invested not only just all their financial resources, but all of that time. Like this is a, I, I describe it to people when, when I started meeting, when I got into this business and started meeting people that owned bars and restaurants and started talking to them and asking them questions and realizing the commitment that was involved in doing it well. I, I, my thought to bring it to my business, I'm like, oh, this is like shooting a movie every day for the rest of your life. There is no off time. And your movie and your movie gets reviewed every day. You know, when your movie comes out, there's a bunch of reviews. When you're in the business, you're getting reviewed every single day. And if you fuck up, doesn't matter how good you are, you fuck up at one time and another, you know, then you're in trouble. One of the things, Stephen, out here in California, they've talked about, and I don't know, I'm assuming it's the same situation in New York, is they, they say, okay, when we do move into the next phase and we reopen, so bars are going to be at 30% capacity, right? So here's my question. Are they going to cut rent? Are they going to cut the cost of supplies? Are they going to, because if they don't, if it's not commensurate with that, they can't make it. They're on razor thin margins as it is. Look, there's the same conversation going on about movie theaters. Is there a movie business if you open theaters and you can only fill them 30%? In my experience, given what I understand about the economics of the industry, that's not going to work. But what are the, yeah, what are the alternatives now? Uh, I don't know. I'm going to have more Singani. Jesus Christ. Yeah. (laughs) But, I'm but, drinking this neat, by the way. I'm thankfully, yeah. But I do. So am I. <laughs> uh, what I do believe in is our collective ability to figure out a way to make this work. And because the people that I've met in this in in the spirit uh, industry on on all ends are very creative, and there's a real incentive here to figure out how to make this work going forward in a, in a pre-vaccine world. You know, there, there will come a time when we, we don't have to, uh, you know, exhibit the kind of social distancing that we're having to adhere to now. And I'm, I'm, these are creative people. There's going to be a way, there's going to be a way to do this. I'm not sure what it is, but here's somebody go on, to hear financial news 
and people say the hospitality industry that 25% of, of bars and restaurants may not make it. That's that figure is just astronomical to me. That's, yeah. that's, it's a, it's a meteorite that wipes out, you know, so many businesses. It's, it's heartbreaking. More, more Singani. And by the way, if you do want to see a more expansive or extensive talk about Singani, uh, Stephen and I did a live stream for Flaviar, and it's on the YouTube channel now. You can go there to Flaviar's YouTube channel, check it out. We talk for like 45 minutes or so, and you can really find out everything you need to know about Singani. But I'll just tell you straight up that it's it's so delicious. So it's from Bolivia. It is not. It is brandy right now. Technically, would it be categorized as a brandy? But you're working to get it its own designation. Well, that's, yeah, this is the tricky thing. It's one of the many, many things that I learned uh, when I got into this business that I didn't know. So there's this organization called the TTB, the Tax and Tariff Bureau. They're in charge of categorization and and sort of labeling so that uh, the public has some understanding of what they're buying when they when they pick up a bottle and look at something. So one of their definitions, it's a very broad definition, is brandy. Brandy, according to the TTB, is any spirit that is distilled from a fruit, period. Any spirit. Any spirit distilled from a fruit, according to the TTB. So Ciroc, would Ciroc vodka be a brandy then? Because that's from grapes, right? Well, I, you'd have to talk yeah. to the people okay. how they skirted that. I'll call they, got, they got the vodka definition. So that's a pretty large net. And what we discovered or what I discovered as I got into this business was that while technically that's true, like Singani is made from from a grape, as it turns out, a single varietal of grape, the Muscat of Alexandria uh, grape, um, it's on paper uh, it may read like a brandy. It may even read like a pisco. But in reality, when you when you do a little exploration into how it's made, where it's made, and what its history is, you realize that it's a very unique, distinct spirit that has incredibly tight criteria uh, that has to be followed in order to call it Singani. So you've got this one grape grown in the southern Andes of Bolivia at a, has to be above 52,000 feet elevation and distilled at that elevation. And it's just this one 20,000 acre area. And if you don't follow those guidelines, if it isn't that single grape grown and distilled at altitude um, in this area, you can't call it Singani. That's really narrow. So what we've been arguing with the TTB is look, if you're going to give Pisco a designation, something that can be made from multiple varietals in multiple countries and has no altitude requirement at all, if you're going to give them their own category under brandy and call it Pisco, you have to give us a category like you have to. And so this has been five years that we've been having this conversation. And I got to figure this has not helped what's going on right now in terms of. Well, it's slowed it down, of course, as everything is slowed down. But I think we're I think we're reaching a, a point where 
they the last information that I got is that they will they will post what is called a proposed rulemaking. Okay. So on the Fed, on the Federal Register, there will be a thing that pops up that says we are proposing that there be a rulemaking that designates Singani as a category type under the brandy umbrella. And there's a, a period, I think it's 30 days, it may be 60, of public comment to, to kind of test the waters for, for whether or not this should become a real thing. Okay. Uh, that was, we were told it was going to happen in April. Everything went crazy with COVID, so we don't know don't when... Know. Well, I'll say yeah. this, whatever, whatever they, whatever the designation is, whatever the TTB says, I'm saying this is Singani is delicious. It is a very versatile spirit. In fact, I'm going to make a cocktail and there's, you can really do anything with it. You do a Negroni, you can do a margarita, you can do an old fashioned. It, it's an incredibly versatile spirit. How much does this uh, retail for Steven? Well, in my mind, uh, the way we set it up is that it would be twenty nine ninety nine on the shelf. What I, what I discovered uh, as I, again, started navigating my way through this business was every state has a different law when it comes to the selling of spirits. And so in a state like, in a state like Washington, the, the taxes that the state imposes on everyone results in us being on a shelf at I think $34.99. And that's really frustrating because in Bolivia, this is the national spirit of Bolivia. It's been around for 500 years. It, everybody drinks it, everybody has access to it. It's, it's an every person's drink. And it was important to me when we came here, even though it shrunk the margins, to have it priced at a point that was really approachable for, for anybody buying, you know, a bottle of 80 proof uh, alcohol. And, and it's so it's frustrating to see it like jacked up, you know, by these, like all these rules. Fucking Washington. God damn it. No. Well, you know, and here's the problem. You could have all of the people, all of the people that own brands in Washington could get together and try and lobby the state legislature to change these rules, it brings in so much money to the state. Yeah, why would there's they change no, it? Yeah, not there's no it. universe in which they're going to change these rules. Well, here's the thing. I, I would talk to you all day because we, you know, but it, unfortunately I have to do a live stream shortly with a famous director. Not going to say who it starts in nine minutes. Uh, but I appreciate you taking the time to join us here on what we're drinking, Stephen. And the next time we do this, I really, truly hope that we'll be doing it in person somewhere, in a bar in New York. That we will be celebrating, yes. All right, man. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Dan. Support for What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn comes from Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Listen, folks, when it comes to dating, it's a jungle out there. But when you do find someone who wants to take you home, you better make sure it's not a jungle down there. That's why I use Manscaped, a revolutionary electric trimmer that makes accidents a thing of the past. Their Lawnmower 2.0 has proprietary skin-safe technology, so this trimmer won't nick or snag your nuts. Take my word on this. No, seriously, you don't want to Google snag your nuts. It's going to take you down a dark road. 
Another reason to get Manscaped is that you don't want to use the same trimmer on your face as you're using on your balls. That's just nasty. Oh, and Manscaped also has the Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. You already put deodorant on your armpits. Why not use it on the smelliest part of your body? Get 20% off and free shipping with the code DRINKING at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the code DRINKING. And always use the right tools for the job. Always use Manscaped. Your balls will thank you. Over the years, I've been collecting stories from bartenders with an eye toward putting out a book someday. A collection of these stories. And I've read some of them here on this show. And I decided I wanted to wrap up today's episode with a story that was told to me a few years ago by a Los Angeles-based bartender by the name of Dave Fernie, who at the time was running a bar called Honeycut in downtown Los Angeles. And I, I just like telling stories about the days when we could gather in bars, even when that experience might not have been so great as the one that's uh, retold here. So this is, as, this is a story we dubbed Saved by the Bell, as told by Dave Fernie, and here we go. We conceived Honeycut as a serious craft cocktail bar, but given our location, we draw a wide cross-section of patrons, from hardcore aficionados to less discerning drinkers who just want to lose themselves in a whir of lights and sound and vodka sodas. The variety of guests is something I've always loved about the place. Whether they're enjoying their first proper whiskey sour, grinding mindlessly to a new Drake track, or accidentally drinking their own vomit from a pint glass, we really get a chance to see it all from behind that bar. We started to see this cultural spread almost immediately after we opened. We'd hired highly trained mixologists, but they often found themselves serving guests they weren't accustomed to. These were bros and broettes whose main objective was to deaden their prefrontal cortexes and to take home a questionable playmate for the evening, rather than enjoy the delicate interplay of bitters and spirit. Our menu might have said Death & Co., but our light-up dance floor screamed Studio 54. I guess there's only so much you can do with a light-up dance floor. One night in the bar's early days, my buddy Josh Lucas and I were stationed in the cocktail lounge, making drinks a mile a minute as another night of revelry kicked into full gear. An hour in, I looked up from my labors to see Josh leaning into a conversation with a guest while half-stirring an aromatic cocktail. After I delivered my next round, he was still at it, which meant he was probably politely dealing with a problem. I headed down to his end of the bar to start picking up some of his slack, but as I scooted past him, he stopped me. Hey Dave, this guy doesn't think I made his Long Island iced tea right, and wants to talk to a manager. At first, I thought the guy had been hanging out at the library bar at the Roosevelt Hotel, where they serve fresh pomegranate Long Islands. They're great, but they're also atypical. For our crowd, we kept it classic. Tequila, gin, rum, vodka, sour mix, splash of Coke. What can I help you with, I asked in my best customer service voice. This fucking guy is trying to give me a Coke in my Long Island, the guy shouted. When he turned to Josh... It's called a Long Island iced tea, dummy. Oh, this guy was funny. I was a little pissed that he was wasting our time like this, but I had to give it to him for the troll move. Patted him on the shoulder and said, Ha, ah, good one, brother. I gotta go make some drinks now. That'll be 16 bucks. I saw my mistake immediately. 
his body language instantly went from what the fuck to let's step outside. I realized this dude wasn't joking around. He really thought a Long Island had iced tea in it. I quickly went into damage control mode, smiling and apologizing. Oh, geez, I'm sorry. You know, it's called a Long Island iced tea, but that's just because it kind of looks like tea when it's done. But seriously, it's made with a splash of Coca-Cola. Take a sip. I think you'll dig it. To put it mildly, he was not interested in my explanation. He refused to taste the drink. I want a fucking Long Island with fucking tea, he yelled. I glanced around. People were getting impatient, waving dollars and getting weirded out by this guy's bad vibes. I needed to get him solved ten minutes ago so I could help the now three deep guests amassing at the bar. By this point, I'd even forgotten the last order I'd taken. Listen, brother, I'm sorry, but we don't have any iced tea in the house, and we got no way to make it. Is there anything else I can get you that you'd like to drink? Or maybe just take this one on the house. You guys are idiots. Fuck this place, he retorted. Then he turned to the stranger next to him and said, These morons can't even make a fucking Long Island. Now, you never want to lose your temper with a guest, but I was coming dangerously close. This guy was officially fucking with my night. Thankfully, a beautiful thing happened. The woman he had directed his comments to fired back before I could. Drink names aren't literal, dude, she shouted. When you order a sex on the beach, you don't get a glass full of sand and cum. Drink your free fucking drink and shut up. The patients were visibly relieved as the guy slinked off with his Long Island, his face like a stoplight. Within ten more minutes, Josh and I had our backlog handled. Then came the best part. The guy finished his Long Island and ordered another. I guess there's a reason they make them that way. And that, folks, is Saved by the Bell, B-E-L-L-E, a story by Dave Fernie. Thank you, Dave, for that. And I want to thank you for joining us on this episode when we got an audience. And thank you to Steven Soderberg. I invite you to follow me at The Imbiber on Twitter and Instagram. And that's all I got for you, my friends. That's all I got today. <laughs>